Welcome to Hunt Gather Talk, the podcast of Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and this week we are going to talk about offal. Yes, variety meats, the wobbly bits, or as my guest this week, Chef Brad Farmery calls it, the jiggly bits. Basically, I'm talking about anything that will fall off the animal when you gut it. So we're talking heart, we're talking lungs, kidneys, liver, intestines, tripe. And then we're also going to deal with other stuff like sweetbreads and tongue and the head of the animal and the tail of the animal and that sort of thing. So it will be a comprehensive look at the variety of meats that you can get off of the animals that you bring home. So my perspective is, of course, wild game and the wild animals that we hunt. But Brad's perspective is that of a great restaurant chef. The reason I'm talking to Brad, and I caught him in his kitchen in Manhattan, so there's a little bit of background noise that you will hear of a busy prep kitchen and behind the scenes. I don't know any chef better than Brad Farmery who can cook these cuts of meat as well and as approachably. So we're going to talk about getting over your fear of the wobbly bits, and I'll take it away right now. Hey, Chef. Welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am super happy to connect with you and get you on the show. Right on, Hank. Great to see you. Great to hear from you. Are you in Manhattan or New Zealand, or, or where is it in your uh, in your vast restaurant empire that you are at? My travels <laughs> have me back in New York, Hank. Good. My, New York is home, right? It is, yeah. Hanging out in my pain cave in the public. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I have been to Public, and Public is a restaurant in Lower Manhattan that if you are ever in Lower Manhattan, you need to go to. It's it's super high quality, really interesting, and yet it's not you don't have to dress up for it, which is even better. True that. Yeah, we want to make it approachable, but still really interesting. Well, you have a number. You also have uh, Saxon and Pope, also in Manhattan. Yeah, Saxon Parole, we opened about five years ago. Saxon Parole, that's right. Yeah, we opened about five years ago, and then... Uh, we have a restaurant called Nine Bark out in uh, Napa Valley, and then we have two sort of fast casual places called Genuine Roast Roadside and Genuine Superette. Uh, those are both in Manhattan, and then the most far flung one is uh, Saxon and Parole in Moscow, Russia, which we opened about three and a half years ago. So one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with you today is to talk about the wobbly bits. <laughs> Jiggly variety, goodness. variety meats, jiggly goodness. I like that. Yeah, something close to my heart. So, the one of the reasons why I want to talk about awful or awful or however you want to pronounce it is that it is the fifth quarter. I mean, it is a whole extra bunch of good things to eat on any given animal that a lot of people don't pay attention to, or even some people who do pay some attention to things like maybe they eat the a deer heart or a beef tongue or something to that effect, there's always room to expand your repertoire. And you're one of the best people in America that I know of who is good at that. So I think I wanted to start with, <laughs> what is your what is your history with, with the wobbly bits? <laughs> <laughs> I think um, 
you know, I think I was kind of blessed that most of my formative years cooking were in London. And I think London, obviously it's the home of Fergus Henderson, but it goes, it goes beyond that where I think that, you know, to this, for many, many years after World War II, I think that they continued to be on rations and be on victory gardens and all the things that people assumed ended at the end of the war. So I think that um, kind of my parents' generation in England would have been kind of forced to eat um, and make do with what they could. So they had to use the whole animal. They, they had to. They had no, no options. So I think the people my age were kind of bringing back that heritage. Um, so I was making black pudding uh, my first year in London. Uh, we were cooking livers and kidneys and tongues. And for somebody who, when I left uh, America, I didn't even know what fennel was, let alone, you know, blood or guts or livers. Um, you know, I hadn't grown up that way. Um, so we grew up with a great garden, so it was chock full of veggies in my house, but we were never exposed to hunting or butchering. So I think it was a great eye-opener as to, to what can be done with animals and how to really respect everything that, that they have to give. Did you have any kind of, you know, when you grew up, you, you know, this was something that you'd eat on, on the rotation, like, you know, pickled beef tongue. And I know that was a big deal in the delicatessens where I grew up in New Jersey. And, you know, we'd see, you know, sometimes you'd see chicken liver pate and chopped chicken liver and stuff like that. But what what was, what did you grow up with? Yeah, I think that the tongue was definitely on the menu and we, we would get a little bit of corned heart as well. And, you know, of course, you know, it probably wasn't presented to us as children in the best possible way. We we had an aversion to it immediately. But I think chicken liver pate, um, and yeah, that was all that was all there. And but there was definitely no, if anything, it kind of built up a distrust or an aversion. I'm sure it was actually the best example possible. I think that's sort of 1970s and early 1980s food in general, at least at the home. <laughs> level. This is true. I, mean, I don't. I don't know about you, but but I had the I had that 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 tuna fish casserole with potato <laughs> chips on top. Oh True my that. god! Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> now it's like a bunch of kidneys on it. No way, dude. <laughs> yeah, the seventies were enough to put you off food in general, let alone the jiggly bits. <laughs> <laughs> so you so uh, you started as a professional cook in London, or or you sort of hit your stride in London. Yeah, I, you know, I was going to university to be a mechanical engineer and I decided that I would take a semester off and do a little bit of traveling. And yeah, I'd worked in some okay restaurants in, in Pittsburgh to pay, pay the bills. And that's not exactly the, the restaurant mecca of America. And so uh, I went over to London with very little education, but sort of a desire to dive into cooking because that's sort of a direction I thought I might want to go. And so I lined myself some jobs with one, two and three Michelin star restaurants and they took me in because I was cheap labor, uh, cheap American nice. labor. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's where it started. And, and my semester abroad ended up going to about eight years before I came back. Wow, that's that's quite a semester. Yeah. Where were you at? Uh, where were you in Pittsburgh? Um, you know, in Pittsburgh, I literally worked at um, at bars and pubs and things like that. Um, ah. but, but yeah, it was, you know, Pittsburgh now is actually an amazing food scene, but back, it back is. in those days, it definitely was not. I'm going to be there in October, actually, at a restaurant called Eleven. Which oh, is, great restaurant! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's let's stop for a second. Like, I, I now I know what awful is, and you know what it is. So let's kind of run through the the standard wobbly bits that you're going to get. So let's see, you got heart, liver, kidneys, mm-hmm. and what else do you bit. think? 
I think the you know the head is up for grabs and the tongue, um, but I guess that's you know it tends to be more of an extremity. But you also get tripe, uh, sweet mm-hmm. breads, uh, blood, intestines, um, and uh, some people call skin uh, offal, but I, I think that that could be a different different territory. But um, yeah, I think that that kind of covers up you know when you split that bad boy open, it kind of covers anything that drops out. Right, the off fall, what falls off the animal is actually exactly. where that term comes from. So what's it. interesting is, is you, you know, you have some <laughs> – so every year in Sacramento, uh, a bunch of us get together and we do an event called Have an Awful Day. <laughs> and it's great. It's great. So, you know, 13 or 14 of us will get together and everybody gets a different jiggly bit. And we've got to make uh, a past app for 200 plus with whatever that bit is. Love and it. every year somebody cheats and it'll be like, <laughs> I'm using oxtail. I'm like, oh, yeah, no man. way, dude. That's, yeah. you know, the other you're poor at, guy's got like, you know, the other guy's got like, you know, sturgeon liver. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, not fair. <laughs> not fair. <laughs> but yeah, so you're right. Skin too, because I, um. I, I've been steadily making chicharrones out of more or less any skin I can find. Uh, mm-hmm. My current favorite is sturgeon skin chicharrones. Oh, I'm going to come visit you, man. Uh, have you ever done that? Never. It's super, it's super cool. So any well, – a little tangent here. So any fish that has a skin that's thick enough, it won't work with salmonids. So don't do it with salmon or trout because that, that crisp it doesn't puff up. Mm-hmm. So like sturgeon, shark, tilefish, um, you know, triggerfish – Anything that's got a pretty substantial skin, uh-huh. um, you take the skin off and you boil it for usually not very long, maybe just a couple of minutes, so that you set all that meat in the in the fat on the inside. Uh-huh. Scrape it off with a butter knife. Make your interns do that, <laughs> and, and then you just dehydrate it. You just put it on a dehydrator until it's like a, a skin plank, and then you crack it into bits because it'll crack like glass. Mm-hmm. And then deep fry it, and it puffs up exactly like a chicharron. Oh, man. That sounds awesome. It's, it's not even very fishy. And you can hit it with whatever you want right when it comes out of the fryer, and it's just – it's money. Yeah, right on. And you decided that you were going to do – make it – basically make a political statement and put this stuff on the menu when you got a chance to start writing menus. What was going through your head? Well, I – when I came back to New York, I – you know, on paper, we had the worst business proposal possible. I had never lived, <laughs> never lived in New York, never worked in New York. My brother and his company had never built a restaurant before, and it was all money borrowed from our family. So it's like, oh man, if we screw this up, we're, we're never going home for Thanksgiving. So what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> exactly. And then, of course, to, to challenge us, ourselves even more, we. You know, I kind of made the mantra as a young chef. I didn't want chicken on the menu. I didn't want beef on the menu. Um, if if you wanted red meat, it had to be lamb or venison. Um, and I wanted at least 20% offal dishes to, to be able to to titillate the humans of New York City. So, And what year was this? Uh, this was 2003. Um, okay. Yeah, and so we, you know, we, we opened the menu with... Uh, with venison and with tongue and with black pudding and with pig head terrine and you know like literally even even my brother who you know he holds my cooking in high regards he was he was scared you know because we were we were putting it out there but at the same time we you know 
and Hank, you and I have talked about this before, but you know, we wanted to present it in a way that doesn't just make it edible, but makes it memorable. And I wanted people to mention it by name and mention our restaurant by name, that that's where you get great black pudding, or that's where you can find a, a chicken liver creme caramel, or that's where you get smoked tongue. And so I wanted to set that into into our guest memory as not just being, you know, a shtick to get people in the doors or for, uh, you know, the bloggers to write about, but something that we're known for and that people are looking for. And uh, you have succeeded yes. <laughs> by all accounts. In good, a good 13 years, so. The, let me let me stop you for a second. So pig head terrine, isn't that just head cheese? It is head cheese, and, you know, it, it can take a bunch of different forms. Like, you know, obviously, we do scrapple, which is basically a, do you really? a version of pig head terrine. Yeah, uh, I'm a Pennsylvania a good, boy, so. That's right, you are. Yes. A good scrapple is a thing of beauty. A bad scrapple is literally gelatinous lips and assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Yeah, so we yeah, pig head terrines, we we can we make them sometimes fancy. Sometimes we just do impress, sometimes we set it in the jelly, sometimes we make it into scrapple. So there's four, three or four different versions of the the same head uh, can give you three or four very different results. It's a much nicer way to put it too than head cheese, which is like the worst way to say it in the whole yeah. world, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even though fromage du tête is just head cheese, but Yeah. <laughs> or uh what's it um or uh, Capa di Testa is the Italian, and um, Presskopf is German. <laughs> but even the British do it better. They just call it brawn, and I like that. I like brawn. Yeah, you kind of know what you're getting. You know. What are you getting? Brawn. <laughs> strong. <laughs> and a pint of beer, please. <laughs> exactly. That's not too cold. <laughs> Tepid. So I, uh, I want to uh, – I've got a bunch of – places I want to go with this conversation, but I also want to go with what you just mentioned too. And, and one of the things that I know our listeners are really perked their ears up is when you mentioned smoked tongue. Mm-hmm. So for me, I've never actually made a smoked tongue, but I know it can be done. And I want you to walk us through the process because a great number of deer and elk hunters will take the tongues out of their animals and are looking for things to do with it. And Every hunter I've ever met likes smoked foods, mm-hmm. so this sounds like a winner. Yeah, it, it is a winner. Um, I think we, we do it a lot with both lamb and beef, veal, of course, um, venison. Um, but what we uh, usually will do is brine the tongue. Uh, again, depending on which tongue you're using, it could be as low as two days or seven days, depending on the size. And then what we normally will do is braise it. And our my braising liquid always has a good substantial amount of vinegar in it. Um, and lots of heavy aromats, star anise, cinnamon, uh, bay leaf, thyme. I think that people forget that you're building up uh, some building blocks of flavor during that braising process. Um, and then we'll peel it while it's still warm. Um, and then we will either hot smoke it. And for hot smoking, this is super easy, and I've actually done it in um, just a grill in the backyard, um, just any grill that you have. You, you line the bottom with foil, and you use 50% uh, Chinese black tea and 50% rice. Um, ah, tea smoked. Tea smoked, yeah. And so the, the rice retains the heat. The, the tea is what actually makes the smoking. Um, and if you want, you can brush a little bit of salt and sugar on the, the tongue, and the sugar will help to balance the bitterness that's um, 
smoking gives it. But yeah, you can mm-hmm. you can do it right there in your grill, which is really cool. And and you know we usually let it go for about uh, 20 minutes, and then we put it in a sealed container in the refrigerator to kind of let that flavor set overnight. And the next day, it's pretty magical. Ah, okay. So it's a very light smoke to it. Yeah, like I know that um, I've also done it in my big green egg, but I think that's almost cheating because it, that that thing makes everything taste good. So it does. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, with a big green egg, I would still brine it, and then mm-hmm. I would put it in, and I've done it at about 180 degrees, and and until it gets its internal temperature of 155, um, and that's more of a, a traditional, um, you know, kind of that hardwood smoke flavor. Right. I mean, the the thing that the hurdle that's always gotten me is, oh, so how do you get the damn skin off? So you braise it, peel, and then smoke. Yes. Yeah. And that's also why I go for slightly lighter smoke. That skin is kind of like a protective layer. So once that's off, it's going to absorb all that flavor. So, um, so yeah. So the smoke in that in that first case for a tea smoke isn't necessarily preservative, but in the second case, if you're smoking it over a hardwood at a low heat like 180 in something like a big green egg or a smoker, uh, that's a good preservative as well. Okay, that's good to know. I'm, I'll definitely work with that in the next. Uh, I'm actually elk hunting this February, so hopefully I'll uh, I'll get one so I can do that. Right on. Send me a photo. I will. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, what have been the challenges? I, I want to hear a couple of horror stories and, and success stories from the restaurant in terms of, oh, yeah, I tried this and it was I was shocked that it was, I can't take it off my menu. And then I tried this and we all agreed to never speak of it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we I think that we the one thing that we dove really deep on was blood. Um, I as I said, I that kind of was one of the, the gateway drugs for me in Ophel where um, I really fell in love with black pudding in England, and so I wanted to play with it. Uh, and, and that's just blood sausage in British English, right? Yeah, that that one is quite chock full of filler, so there's like a lot of um, barley um, and uh, oatmeal. So it's quite dense. It doesn't even need a skin. So to be honest, if anyone wants to try a blood sausage, that's the one to do because you basically pour it into a baking mold, almost like you would make bread, and then you steam it. So it's not finicky. You're not trying to push something that looks like soup into intestines like all the other blood sausages. So so I think once once I started looking around all over the world for inspiration on blood, we we had some some big failures, you know, but blood's used for so many interesting things. You know, we made blood bread. We made blood pancakes from Sweden. Obviously, blood sausages, but we made a uh, Chris Cosentino inspired me to do a blood and um, cocoa sauce for foie gras, which which was y- unique, but but not, maybe not exactly what I was looking for. Um, so so I think that's another thing. I think it's kind of cool that it opens up a conversation between chefs and between hunters and between uh, guests and and anyone patronizing the restaurant uh, as to like you know what's what's the what's the angle here like and and, and how can I like support what you're doing because I think that's um and, and that's also why I wanted to write an article about blood which I wrote for uh, food arts a few years ago you know there really is was at the time no information online um, or in books that I could find and so I thought that I would just kind of draw up a quick I, I thought it would be a little half page that they would give me and and after researching and looking around and doing a lot of cooking it ended up being like a six page article which wow. uh, which kind of like you know, allowed me to 
to try to help other people on the on the same path, which uh, which I had made so many mistakes along the way that I thought it would be cool if they could eliminate some of those <laughs> mistakes in their own cooking. Have you ever done um, uh, uh, alpine blood noodles? Blood noodling? Indeed, yeah. <laughs> I have actually a recipe for that on the website. Oh, yeah? And when I first published it, everyone was like, you are absolutely out of your mind. <laughs> what was going on is we have a local hog farmer and a guy named John Bledsoe, and he's got great pork. And so, you know, one day he knew I was buying weird bits. He's like, hey, you like weird bits, right? I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, you need, you ever need some blood? I'm like, absolutely. And <laughs> so, you know, he only has it in like gallon jugs, right? Yeah. So, so I made the obligatory Portuguese blood sausages and then, uh, and then I had all this blood left over. I'm like, well, what the hell am I going to do with it? And so there's this phenomenal book, which I'm sure you own. It's called The Encyclopedia of Pasta, uh-huh. uh, by a woman named Moretta Zanini. And, you know, every pasta fool in the, country just loves this book because it's got these bizarro <laughs> there's like one town in you know east tyrol that does this pasta and it's called blood noodles and it's like whoa my head exploded <laughs> and the dough if you know you've made the dough right yeah i have it's cool as hell it looks just like you know cherry dough yeah but it ain't cherry dough <laughs> <laughs> how did you did you do it with sage and cheese or did you do it a different way I did it with sage and um, sage and butter and black a lot of black pepper. Oh, cool! Oh man, that's the way yeah, to I think go. I probably created a little cheese on it, for sure. But how do you serve it? Exactly like that, you know. Simple. I think let the let the hard work that you did do the talking and uh, just simple garnish on it. It's interesting because if you're if you're at all out there interested in doing something with blood, this might be the most innocuous thing that you can do. So on the one hand. It's freaky looking and it's freaky to think about. But on the other hand, if you eat the pasta, yes, you can taste a little bit of the ironness mm-hmm. in it. But it is not overwhelming. Like um, no, like it's not it's not bloody in its flavor too much. So it's it, it kind of would be a good way to get into it. I agree. Yeah, that's a, another good gateway drug. <laughs> it's funny. I had, I have some notes written here. Like and I have gateway drug written down for far, before we even got on the call. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. I I think that's. I really think also black pudding. I, I, you know, it's so spiced and so textural. I think that if people people give that a chance, I think that with like literally with a fried egg can be pretty magical. Yeah. You know, we'll just call it bloody meatloaf. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> bloodloaf. How can we make it? We can, yeah, bloodloaf. <laughs> Perfect. That's a that's a huge seller. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I mean, if, when I grew up. You know, and I, um, I think I'm a little, I'm a little, I think I'm a little older than you. I'm 46. You got me by three years, so. Okay, so we're contemporary. Yeah. So, and we both, um, so we both, I think, were involved going to restaurants as a kid, and I know I sure was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the at the nicer restaurants in the late 70s and the early 80s, the really the only, you know, off cut that you would see with any consistency was sweetbreads. Agreed. Yeah. It's funny that even like to to this day, my 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 parents, their first like if I talk about offal at all, they're like, well, like sweetbreads, you know, like that's that's their go to because it's safe, you know. And then and then it might segue to foie gras, and I'm like, ah, yeah, like <laughs> that's that's an extremely safe version. But but yeah, those uh those were definitely on the on the menu, and and probably still some of the most popular ones on my menu as well. 
For sure. I mean, you know, it's funny. I actually don't cook them very often because I more or less exclusively do wild game. Yeah. And I have yet to find a decent sweet bread on anything that I've taken home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're just too small and it's not worth it. You can find the little glands here and there, but it's like, meh, you know, it's nothing like a cow. Yeah. Yeah, not worth it. And your general method, though, is, is to poach them right and then peel that skin off and then cook them a second time yeah they um you know normally like when, when i purchase them they come in almost like a v shape and where, where those two arms come together it tends to be a little bit thicker and that's only held together by a membrane so normally i snip that membrane a bit and if you stretch it out into one long piece it will be almost exactly the same size from from end to end and so that allows for very even cooking and then, ah. then what I normally do is drop them into heavily salted boiling water for five minutes, shock them in cold water, and then peel that membrane. And at this point, you can do two different things. If, if people want to pan fry them, what they'll normally do is press them overnight. So, mm. you know, you put them in one pan with another heavy pan on top, and then you get a nice even surface. Because I think a lot of what's so nice about sweetbreads is the textural contrast between the outside and the, as we say, pillowy soft inside. Uh, <laughs> so I think by pressing them, you get a nice sear and a lot of crunch. Um, but also, if people are going to um, saute them or deep fry them, it's it's sort of an unnecessary step. Gotcha. My neighbor is from Argentina, and he does the greatest sweetbreads I've ever eaten. And they're they're par cooked. It takes a membrane out, and he grills them hard, only on one side. And so you've got that crunch, but yet they're not overcooked in the middle, and they're just doused in chimichurri. Oh as man, you imagine that sounds super. Good. Super good. Like, like he's just not allowed to come to our parties unless he's bringing a giant tray. <laughs> forget, forget the wine. Bring the breads. <laughs> That's, yeah, Malbec and sweet breads. <laughs> so the is there anywhere that you won't go? Like for me, um, if you serve me brains, I'd eat brains. But I'm not going to go out of my way to, to eat brains. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. I don't necessarily go out of my way to eat brains. Um, the one, you know – Liver, I, I like a lot. Uh, kidney, yeah, I could, I could take it or leave it. I think that, you know, the, the, as I call it, the functional smell. You know, I think the that sort of urinurea smell for me, like sometimes it's very strong. So I don't necessarily hunt it down, but um, I'd say almost everything else, I'm a big fan of. Obviously, heart, marrow, um, uh, livers. Um, yeah, blood. I, th I think that, uh, yeah, I think everything else is up for grabs as far as I'm concerned. So you're going to get in a fight with April Bloomfield over that whole kidney thing. Yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if you've read her book or you know, talked to her about it, but she doesn't even soak her kidneys at all, which I find typically Britishly appalling. <laughs> yeah, she's a kidney gangster. <laughs> like, I love, I, I, I actually have in my, in, the, in my next cookbook, um, Fergus Henderson's recipe for uh, devil kidneys uh -huh. that I do with venison kidneys. And I soak them for a day, a full day beforehand. Yeah. And, you know, you literally suck the piss out of them. Yeah. And when you do that, this was a magical moment. And this is kind of one of the reasons why I want to talk to you to begin with, because you get this all the time. So I made devil kidneys and obviously we test the recipe. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, can't go in the book. So Holly, my girlfriend, hates kidneys like hates them with the heat of a thousand suns 
So I make these double kidneys for her, and she screws her nose up, and she's like, oh, I suppose I should try it. And she asked for seconds. Oh, right on. It was this amazing, like, first, both of us were like, oh, yeah, we're going to have to eat this because it's kidneys. I want to make sure the recipe's right. And we were prepared to soldier through, and we made them three times. <laughs> I'm going to check out your book, man. I like. It's one that that I've we've had on the menu, and literally, it's also a hard sell. Like we, I think people are. I think I told you this before. We always joke that public should have a sign over the entry saying "Abandon Hope, All Ye Who Enter," because <laughs> it's like we are not giving you steak and we are not giving you chicken, and you're gonna kind of eat what we want you to eat, and I think you're gonna like it. And and it's hard, man. Like tongue tongue does pretty well. Our blood. Blood recipes do pretty well. Liver always does well. Sweetbreads go go extremely well. But kidneys, literally, it's it's almost family meal after service on every night because like we might sell one, one of wow, them. yeah, out of two hundred and fifty people, we'll sell one, maybe two. So. Even if you do like a steak and kidney pie. Well, you know what? That I've done savory pies, and that's where that's where I can can hide the the guest sins you know it's all the things they they should be eating but they they're not smart enough to know it so we do a we actually do a instead of steak and kidney we do a black black pudding and kidney pie which is is pretty gangster it's pretty yummy yeah it is kind of <laughs> yeah the uh the the frontiers that I've been going on you know so a lot of it has been you know, I did a, uh, a duck cookbook. I've just finished a venison book and I'm just starting work on a small game book. So I end up with a lot of bits that I'm like, huh, well, it's kind of like a lamb kidney or kind of like this or kind of like that. And, and the one frontier that I went into that I, I'm not sure if anybody else has done is venison tripe. Wow. So the, the tri- you know obviously you know deer is just like any other ruminant and it's got the chambered stomach and it's kind of an icky business i don't know if you've if you've ever gone from animal to completed tripe um it's a it's a it's a journey yeah <laughs> <laughs> cuz you probably get clean tripe in the in the kitchen oh, yeah. and oh man it's a tsunami of green ick that comes out <laughs> of the you know you need a hose nearby but you know, and you, and you hose it off, and and then you have to soak it in a little bit of uh, water with hydrogen peroxide, mm-hmm. and that kills some extra germs, and it actually bleaches it a little bit, but not too much. And then you par cook it, and then you scrape that weird terry cloth interior off it, uh-huh. and then you're left with your tripe. And you know, it's I, this is another one where we're like, ah, oh, you know, I'm on this journey. We're gonna finish it. <laughs> So I did the old school Neapolitan, you know, spicy tomato sauce with the tripe uh, acting as kind of the noodles, you know, and you cut them in a kind of noodly shape. And goddamn, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked, as you know. I mean, I'm sure you've had Neapolitan tripe from a cow before. Yeah. And and it just, I was stunned at at how worth it it was. It was to the point where we were just sad that there was only the one deer. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm. I, um, and also inspirational. It's funny, but you know, people think tripe alone is is such a, a stretch of the imagination. But then the venison tripe, and you know, to to use a tried and true dish like that, I think is actually very cool. You know, it's it's a way that people will definitely become a believer, as as you did. Yeah, I mean, because I knew I liked it, because I've ordered it in Italian, or you know, the old red sauce places usually have it. Yeah. And I said, well, let's just just just, just go real safe and do that. <laughs> Um, and if I had another one, I would do, um, 
You do crispy fried tripe too, don't you? Yeah, I love, I love it. That's dope because it looks super cool, right? Yeah. Because you get the honeycomb shape. Yeah. And, and I mean, you have a, a strong Asian influence in your cooking. Yeah, we um, I've, I've done a lot of traveling out there, and and again, that's like the the magical, the, the promised land for for innards. You know, it's, it's it kind of is. It, it, and they they've got so many obviously cool techniques and sauces and stuff. So so they really make some great stuff out of it, and I I love that crispy crispy fried tripe because there's so much surface area to crisp up and like you said it just looks really cool it makes people stop and and get curious and, and kind of want to dig in i can only imagine like you know even something as ghetto as like crispy fried tripe with sriracha yeah yeah you know yeah, that's a, <laughs> like, that's what, a bar what? snack man <laughs> yeah totally you're watching the warriors beat the calves and uh <laughs> and you know and it's like yeah i'm just eating some crispy fried tripe with sriracha yeah no, no biggie <laughs> no biggie <laughs> It's just it's got to be. Um, what's some of the craziest stuff that you found out in in Asia when you went there? I mean, I'm sure you found something that you you met your match there. Yeah, well, I you know, <clears throat> I I had to I had to get it all in. You know, I I'm like I might not be back anytime soon. And granted, I, I've been back many times, but on my first couple journeys to to Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos and Singapore and even the Philippines, like you you got to do it all, and so. You know, I, I can't say I'm head over heels over like Balut. The, I knew you were going to say yeah, that. <laughs> it's, and of course, every single person in the Philippines wants to give you one. You know, as soon as they see you get off that bus, they rush up and want and want to watch you eat a Balut. So, yeah, I, I to be honest, I really liked the juice around it. It was like the most intense um, chicken stock ever. But but getting in there and like kind of feeling the the feathers on that little fella, you know, wasn't wasn't really gonna do it for me um i um i i did i passed on the opportunity to to have a seven course dog menu um i i slid by that one but um but did did go and go to the place in northern vietnam that's very well known for snakes and so i did have like an eight course snake menu and starting with the you know i think it's traditional to they pour a little shot of the snake liqueur that has a a dead snake in it so it's been kind of fermenting and then they they cut open the snake and pull out the heart and pour the blood in there so you're supposed to shoot it while while the heart's still beating in the glass and and so i think i saw tony bourdain do that yeah i i do not doubt that you know so i it was actually again it was cool like you learn about eating the crispy um bones which is super delicious and the same thing they made something similar to a very quick version of chicharron where it wasn't puffed but it was super crispy with the skin so you know again they they've been doing it a long time and so they were do you suppose you could do that with a rattler because a lot of us you know cook and eat rattle rattlesnakes i would say you definitely could it's interesting those bones might be a little too big to get crispy but the i assume that the skin would still be super delicious but the, it has all those scales, though. I mean, what do they do with the scales? What's weird, because I think that they these scales look so small that it was almost like the fish that you can fry, and it actually they flake up and become, oh. become textural. So it wasn't nasty. It was kind of funky and interesting. So How long was the snake? Uh, probably about three and a half, four feet. Okay. Yeah. So that guy had some size to it. Yeah. And you, the funny thing is, of course, they pour them all out over the floor. <laughs> They're like, oh, perfect. Choose, choose your snake. I was like, well, you know. I want Bob. He looks yeah, happy. Exactly. Why don't you just pick for me? <laughs> but yeah, it was a cool experience. And um, 
and again, seeing how everyone utilizes the same parts in different ways was was really great. Now I want to make rattlesnake chicharrones. There you go, man. That's another one that you could totally do it. You know, you you skin the snake, you do you you know you cook the skin enough to to get the meat and fat off the underneath side, dry it and puff it up. Why not? Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, I think once it's dead, there's there's small chance for anything going wrong. But but I like your 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 story about the venison tribe because it, I I had a similar thing when I went hunting for wild boar. And I wanted to make um, the blood sausages, you know, with the intestine and with the blood of the animal. And, of course, being a chef in New York City, like, I don't get the raw intestine the way that it comes straight from the animal. We get it looking pretty good, so. It's a shitty job, it's dude. It's a shitty job, <laughs> yeah. So, of course, um, of course, everyone that I was hunting with thought it was crazy that I even wanted to keep the blood. Like, the group that I was with were more about you know primary cuts and so part of what i wanted to do was sort of you know they were taking me into their element to show show me the hunt and then i wanted to take them into my element to show them what can be done with the whole animal to make sure that we were again doing 100 percent usage and, and respecting the whole process that we had gone through and so it was the literally the first time that they had collected the blood um, from one of the animals they hunted and then of course once i went through the whole intestine thing i think that they were <laughs> they were leaning towards the I will never do this again uh, trip, but I think once it was done and made, I think they uh, they really appreciated it and, and kind of saw that, like, again, I keep saying it, but that sort of magical transformation from something that you think is almost appalling or unusual or freakish into something that's is quite tasty. Yeah, I mean, I totally hear you. I mean, the, now, here's a, a mechanical question. How did you preserve the blood? So, okay, because this is a question that a lot of us have, when we're in the field, who, who want to do this, you know, the one thing that I've heard is you keep, uh, you know, um, like a uh, some sort of a container, like a quart jar or something with a little vinegar in it. And then you just keep that in your backpack. And, you know, once the animal's down, because you can't, you know, you can't slit its throat like a farm animal, you know, you've shot it. Yeah. So how are you getting the blood? Well, you know, what we did was we, like, I... Our, our killing blow was a, a knife to the heart. Um, oh, sporty. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, like, yeah, of course, from my my office in New York, it sounded like a great idea. Then when I was out there, I was like, oh, God, here we go. Um, but that, I think hitting that hitting a major artery or finding a major artery was, and, and helping it bleed out that way was, was useful. Um, and then exactly that, you know, I think most of the blood that's sold for consumption is um, goes uh, through a defibrination process. So fibrin is the matrix or the protein that builds the matrix um, to make it coagulate. So what you need to do is disrupt that protein, and you can do that by shaking it, which is effectively what happens in the slaughterhouses in America. They have this machine that shakes it up like a big milkshake, and that that um, kills the effect of that protein so it won't strawberry quick exactly fluffy and nice you know before it goes into <laughs> that gallon jug that you were talking about um but yeah you can do vinegar and a touch of salt is another one um and so it's and you, you know some people say it's it can be as high as uh one part vinegar to six parts uh blood um so you know i think that you you I think that that acidity is going to be good in the final product anyway because it's going to um, balance the richness that blood brings. I think the one thing you don't want to do is, though, you know, blood, the, the 
big protein is in it is the same as eggs. It's albumin. So you don't want wow. to, to use so much to curdle that albumin because then it doesn't have that, um, that uh, thickening process that, that blood has. Gotcha. So maybe I bet you like a tablespoon per quart jar. I think that work. yeah, I think that that would be good. Plus a pinch of salt, and then probably okay. when you get it back to wherever you are, throw it through a, a strainer, uh, and then mm-hmm. refrigerate it until you need it. Yeah, and it doesn't keep very long. No, um, like I think be, and the funny thing is, people always think blood is like dirty or nasty, but meanwhile, it's it's a complete sanitary. Um, environment because you know nothing's building up inside your body so it's only once it's outside and the reason it goes bad so quickly is because it's so nutritious i think people forget that they think that you know blood's just a waste product but it's extremely nutritious which is why bacteria and and pathogens get attracted to it because it is so good you know it's so uh, nutrient dense Hmm. good to know yeah i think the um see what else you know one of the things that is interesting for people is like a lot of the listeners and readers of Hunter Angler Gardener Cook are, are they're into this stuff. You know, they they want to be able to use more of what they bring home. And uh, let's talk about birds for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've you know, I've talked about my 24 hour corn gizzards. Love them. Um, and what are some of the cool things that you can do with the giblets of birds and, and, and a small game too? you know, include rabbits as well. Yeah, well, I you know, rabbits are great. I think that, you know, I think comfing the rabbit is a great way to go. You know, we've done wild hair from Scotland uh, when I was in England. And, you know, it's a pretty full-on flavor. But I think, you know, we'll give it four hours on salt. And then we mm-hmm. cook it in um, in uh, goose fat or duck fat. Or in a pinch, you could cook it in olive oil. And we actually do the same with the innards, uh, the heart. Uh, the kidney and the liver all get salted, but that's more like literally we'll salt those for about uh, maybe 20 minutes, pull them off. Mm. And then I put them in a slotted spoon and I lay that right on top of the fat and they'll cook until they're sort of like medium, medium well. And then I pull them out and you could literally eat them right there. You could slice them and put them on toast, which is pretty amazing. Or you can work them into a terrine with the rest of the, um, the confit meat. Um, I think hmm. the nice thing about confit is it's a natural preservation, well, I shouldn't say natural, but it's a, it's a preservation system. So uh, what you can easily do is you can confit the whole animal and, and throw that container that you confit it in into the fridge. And as soon as that fat sets, you know, no bacteria can get into that meat. And the flavor actually gets better over the course of a month. So It does. Although you're going to want to salt it longer than four hours if you're going to hold it for a month. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But... um. But I think that if you're building a terrine or something, I think it's great because it's also almost like it, there's, there's not much work to do after that. You pick the meat off the bones, throw it in, into a terrine mold and press it. And then you Good refrigerate point. it. And, you know, you're literally uh, slicing that and serving it uh, the next day. Good with pickles. Great with pickles. Great with pickles. So, you know, a lot of the bird livers you get in a restaurant are going to be tannish or beige-ish. They're going to have a degree of fat on them. Mm-hmm. But in the wild, our duck livers and pheasant livers and rabbit livers are virtually burgundy. Yeah. There's almost no fat in them. Mm-hmm. And they can be a little bit more challenging. I mean, what would you suggest on that? I agree. And, again, that that's one of my, um, one of my mistakes over the years was, uh, you know, we've had people bring us game that they, that they shot, and we would hang the birds and um, – and, you know, after a few days or a week of hanging, I would 
actually open it up and you know prepare the pan and I was so excited about eating this liver and um and it was it would be so strong that literally my gag reflex would shut my throat and uh it would be like none shall pass <laughs> so <laughs> you know it was like this this guilty little moment where like I sneak in there and I I get the liver and I'm like oh my god I'm going to have a little feast here <laughs> and it ends up being like ha ha like extremely challenging so um yeah so I think that in in those cases, what we've done is you go more, at least I've go, gone more towards a liver mousse or, you know, because you need to add that fat. So whether that's cream or butter um, to help, I guess, spread the flavor, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, I know that uh, you and I have talked about a chicken liver creme caramel recipe that I used to do. And I think oh, yeah. also with that, the... The slight sweetness helps to balance that sort of metallic, um, deep, uh, deep flavor, I guess. Um, so you can also soak them. I bet you know you can soak them 24 hours before you even t- go do anything with them. That takes a lot of that out. Yeah, definitely. I think that you know, again, there's blood, there's there's bile, there's all that stuff that you can can kind of rinse away. Like I can't even touch a, a wild pig's liver without soaking it. Yeah, man, that's a that's a strong flavor, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like you know an NFL locker room at halftime. Ah, <laughs> you know what the the the, the wild uh, pig liver and the and the wild pig tongue I usually use almost as quote unquote seasoning in in my terrines. You know, we um, or you know the same thing with the tongue. What we've done is we've uh, cooked it and smoked it. And then believe it or not, uh, it's usually firm enough that you can use a microplane and we'll microplane that over another dish. So you, you might roast one of the, uh, the prime bits, put it on mash or something simple, and then we'll microplane it over almost like a, you would a truffle or something or cheese. So you get that like, you know, those hints of funk without being uh, a slap in the face. Well, that's kind of cool. Like one thing I, I'll do is I'll make, um, I'll cure uh, a bresciola, you know, a loin of something, mm-hmm. and I'll cure the hell out of it until it's like a like a bonito block, you know, the uh, the tuna blocks that they do for uh, dashi. Oh yeah. And then I, and then I'll shave it off either on a microplane or on a bonito box. So you have these paper thin, teeny little shavings of dried cured meat. Yeah. It it's so cool over pasta. That's really cool. Yeah, I think that you know I think it's also a great way to you know there's strong flavors or if even if someone's trying to cure something for the first time, like if they cure it a little bit too much or it goes too long, it's not not to be thrown away. There's always some use for it. Exactly. I think Cosentino grates uh, hard cured pig liver on stuff. Yeah, I don't doubt it. He's, I think <laughs> he's, he's a good kid, that guy. <laughs> We're referring to Chef Chris Cosentino, who is a uh, a great chef in San Francisco. Also works a lot with offal. Yeah. What are your frontiers? You know, where are you where are you looking towards now? I mean, what you know, clearly, you know, I mean, you've been doing this for years. I've been doing this with game for years, and you know, but we're, you know, you never learn everything, you know. No, and that you know, that's part of the joy of this whole industry and and what you do and what I do. I think, you know, by talking to people like yourself, it's an education. Everyone works within their own laboratory, which is their kitchen. Uh, on a daily or weekly basis. And I think that all those scientists doing all their lab results create so many amazing uh, new ideas. And I think by talking to yourself, talking to Chris Cosentino, talking to the guys from the pork board, talking to Adam Sappington out in Portland, 
Andy or April right down the street. Or from yeah, or April or uh, Andy Ricker, who's doing more of a northern t- oh, yeah. Thai version. You know, yeah. I think I think it's always an education, and that's what I love that you know people can get together and share their ideas, and also um, you know again as a group celebrate this this great direction that food is going that I think got neglected for such a long time. Well, so last train of thought I want to go through before I let you go is um, if you were to help, you know, let's say somebody's shot a deer or a pig or a bunch of birds, what would you, what was, what would be your sort of your starter kit kind of idea for the awful that is in any given animal? And you could pick either birds or, or, or a big game animal. It's like, all right, so let's just say we got a deer in the ground. Mm-hmm. So you've got the heart, liver, kidneys, tongue, You've got, you know, random other bits if you want to choose to, to go there. What would you say to an, a, a, a competent home cook who's into it, who wants to learn more? What would your gateway drugs be for that animal? Well, I think uh, offal comes first. I think because it's delicate um, in its makeup and I think uh, strong in flavor but delicate in its makeup, I think that that's what you would want to to take care of first, the, the meat can wait. Um, I think. Right. I, so what would your awful projects be for a for a, a, a beginner? Well, I think one great, great, great awful project that everybody should do. Everyone listening to this should definitely make a black pudding. And I have a recipe online, so if you Google my name and black pudding, it will come up. And I I will put a link in the show notes. Oh, perfect. And I actually do it with traditionally do it with venison because I get to use all of my scrap um, that. I can't use for anything else. So I think, you know, you can kind of judge what parts uh, of the animal can be turned into ground venison. And I think that that and the blood uh, and can be used straight away. Um, and I think it takes very little technique. I think you literally mix it, you pour it into uh, into a bread mold and you steam it until it's done. I think that that's, that's definitely a guarantee. Um, I would look at turning the liver into uh, something like a liver mousse. Um, I think that that's something that, again, it's not challenging for people. I think that uh, the technique is easy, and and your your friends, neighbors, relatives, everyone's going to love it. And I think that's part of it. I think get people on your side and get them excited that you're going on this challenging road. I think then they support you, and, and they want you to be making all these cool, interesting, unusual things. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think heart is pretty much easy. Everybody, I, yeah. I, Most deer hunters already cook and eat the heart so the uh so that one most people have down yeah um and i think kidneys i would suggest devil kidneys uh i'm gonna go with you on that man yeah that because that's you know and and absolutely soak them uh you can soak them for three days if you want um you know each day they get a little bit if you change the the water or the milk um they'll get a bit milder and then finally you know the the one thing with the tongue is you know what i suggest for people with a dough uh, or, or if it's a buck where you've cut the uh, the antlers off, mm-hmm. I've made head cheese with a deer. Cool, and it's it works just like a pig. Yeah, and you know, I mean, we were joking before we got on on the air. As uh, uh, was the my our rule, or at least my rule of thumb for head cheese is like when you're pulling everything off. Hmm, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> cut it, cut it smaller. <laughs> yeah, when in doubt, chop it up. <laughs> But uh, but that's that's kind of an easy one. You just you know, and usually like a doe's head will fit in your stock pot, and then you keep the tongue in because that becomes like the biggest 
piece of your meat along with the cheeks. Right. No, I think that that's amazing. I, I love head cheese, and I think that, again, there's so many different ways to do it that I, I think you – I won't say you can't screw it up, but I think, you know, you pick what, what you think is right, and, um, and you can press it into any mold. Um, and then you can serve it cold or literally you can, you can put a little flour or polenta on it and, and pan fry it and get some crisp on it. So you can play around with even what your vehicle is or what your presentation is. That's a great idea. I've never, I don't think I've ever done the, the polenta and pan fry thing. Yeah, what's crazy is I worked at um, a really schmancy two Michelin star restaurant uh, in the UK called Le Manoir. And uh, we used to do uh, rolled poached veal head. And then we would cube it and do um, lots of black pepper, uh, polenta, and flour. And then we would pan fry it. And so you would, again, you get that same uh, textural contrast like we were talking before where you get the crispy outside and then you get the interwoven mixture of fat and meat uh, from the head cheese on the inside. So it's, it's kind of a great little little popper. You see, when you describe what it actually is, it sounds good. But could you imagine, like, oh, yeah, so I'm having rolled pressed veal head. <laughs> yeah, less discussion, more eating. <laughs> right. You know, just call them veal head. Just call them veal poppers. Yeah, veal you know? <laughs> What's in it? Well, I can describe it for you, but you should just eat it. Yeah, trust me, my friend. <laughs> Well, cool. Well, uh, I'm. Uh, we've been on for almost an hour, and what's let, let's leave it leave it with uh, where are you headed to next? I mean, do you have any big adventures coming up, uh, or you know, restaurants you're opening, or trips you're taking, or or are you taking a new culinary? You know, yeah, we all have culinary tangents that we spend lots of time with, and just sort of where 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 are you headed now? Well, I'm, I'm actually in a couple of weeks. I'm heading back to London, um, and. It's great. The restaurant that I helped open over there called the Providors is having their 15-year anniversary. So they're bringing back a bunch of uh, chefs that have gone on to, to interesting things like myself and some of the other line cooks who have opened restaurants. So we're going to go back. And, and interestingly enough, I think three of us picked Ophel, um to, to cook. So um, so we'll see. It's probably going to be a super cool menu. And I'll have a lot of time to kick around London. I'm heading to uh, Lebanon, um, oh, wow. uh, to Beirut, which is where my uh, grandparents on my mother's side are from. And I really want to kick around and see that cuisine. I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East, but I've never gotten there. So I'm kind of looking for a little inspiration. Um, and we are, you know, fingers crossed on the cusp of, opening another restaurant that will not be in New York, but I'm not going to say where it will be. We'll have to wait until we... Sacramento! Well, I, I would <laughs> love it, man. And you know I'm going to come out to visit you. I'm out in uh, California in August, which is always inspirational and amazing. Cool. So so I'll be knocking on your door. Excellent. Well, all right. This is uh, Chef Brad Farmery from Public and Saxon and... Parole. Parole. I always, I always say Pope. I think it's because of Pope and Young for the... For the it's the hunting thing of oh, yeah. for, for archery deer and such. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I will have a link to all of your stuff on the uh, show notes for this. And thanks again for coming on the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Cool, thanks, Hank. It's always great to talk to you. Well, that's the Hunt Gather Talk podcast for this week. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and as always, you can find links to pretty much everything that Brad Farmery and I discussed on this podcast in the show notes on Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That's honest-food.net. Thanks again for listening in. I am your host, Hank Shaw. This is the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, and I hope you guys have a good week. See ya. Bye.